Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 10th episode of our second year. It premiered in February of 2011, and it's called Under the Influence. Hello, children. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Jordan Cooper up top, and this is Sean Lee behind me now. Our episode theme today is Under the Influence. Stories about drugs, my friends. They're the good, the bad, and the ugly today, folks. Uh, We cover all terrain. So are you ready to take a little trip? Our first story was recorded live in Los Angeles at the UCB Theater, where we have our show each month. Uh, This is John Daly, super funny guy. Uh, He does a lot of stuff on Funny or Die. You can find him at jondaly.com. We call this one Them Purple Shits. I'm living in New York City, and uh, there's an improv... I'm at the UCB Theater in New York City, which is a lot like this place, uh, except it's in the basement of a Gristides, which is a New York City uh, grocery store. Um, so there's an improv group at, at UCB that's, like, famous, and they're the best, you know? They're called The Swarm, and everyone is super into them, and it's their last show. It's a huge party after party for the swarm. And I'm very excited to go to this party uh, because my friend Alex, let's call him, is a good friend of mine, the theater man- former theater manager at the uh, New York UCB. And then a friend of mine who's a comedian named Brian. We're all going, and we kind of... Uh, are talking about it that day and uh, Alex says to me hey man we're getting some shrooms for tonight would you want to do do shrooms tonight at the party and I was like yeah let's do it so I'm at the show and I witnessed the drug deal the shrooms deal (laughs) and it's a horrible man with like that tartar plaque on his teeth And he's a super hip-hopped-out white guy. And he um, tells Alex, he's like, Be careful with these, man. These them purple shits. (laughs) 
And so Alex is like, all right, man. And he gets a fucking, gigantic, like an ounce of mushrooms, like a lot, an enormous amount of mushrooms in my eyes. And, um, and he's like, yeah, and we're so excited. And so this party starts at about midnight, right? So 11.30, midnight, uh, Alex comes out with these purple shits. And, uh, and he's like, uh, okay, cool. And he gives me an eighth of mushrooms and my friend Brian an eighth of mushrooms and he's got unlimited mushrooms. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I'll just take some mushrooms and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll take like one stem or something like that. Cause I want to be able to socialize at this party and kind of hang out and stuff like that and giggle a lot. Cause I'll be on mushrooms and that'll be kind of funny. So I take one of these, literally I look at it and it is purple. Uh, for whatever reason, it's purple. I eat this purple stem and put the rest of the stuff in my pocket and we start mingling and dancing and stuff and uh, then about a half an hour later I cannot be there there's just I can't be there I'm like these people are turning into puppets their faces are melting on the dance floor and people are being really mean to me I have to fucking I have to get the fuck out of here it was like very urgent and I'm just like, oh my god, like I can't do I keep running into these people that I know, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, oh god, how do I get in touch with Brian and Alex? They know me. And uh, so I go to the lobby of the UCB theater, and they're both there. And they go, you want to get the fuck out of here? <laughs> yes, I do. So we go outside, and we discuss, because... Alex has taken a handful, he's taken an entire eighth of mushrooms. Seth and I both meted it out, so we're on like, you know, a half a mushroom each. But I am tripping to the point where I cannot be at this party already. So we're like, oh man, let's fuck, you know what? We don't have to be at this party. It's trip night. We're gonna walk to Central Park. That's what we'll do. We'll walk to Central Park, check out buildings. We're like walking around. The Empire State Building is shrouded in mist. We're like, oh God, look at those colors. Holy shit. Oh, this is the best. This is the best night. We're walking up. We're like on 26th and 7th or something like that. Just like walking uptown, we're going to go to Central Park and do what the fuck ever. Probably look at her hands. And uh, so we, we're walking, we're on 26th Street and 7th Avenue. We're on the corner and our friend Alex, the theater manager guy, is like, oh, I don't feel good. And we're like, oh, okay, you know, do what you got to do. He goes around the corner, blah, starts puking, right? He's puking. And me and Seth are laughing, right? We're just like, yeah, because we feel nauseous too. You take a lot of mushrooms, which are basically poison. You, you got nauseous, so we're, you know, we're kind of like, yeah, he's fucked that man. So uh, that's what we're like. Um, so uh, then Alex comes back, and we're like, what's up, man? Did you just puke? And Alex says, Who the fuck are you? <laughs> Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? And I'm like, I'm John, dude. I'm John Daly. You know me from the theater. I perform there. You're the manager. And, 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 and Brian's like, I'm Brian. I'm Brian. I perform. We're friends. We've been friends for like 
four years. And he's like, fuck! And he fucking runs into traffic on 7th Avenue. Starts walking down the street in a very, like, he knows where the fuck he's going. He's walking down the street. We have to run. The traffic starts coming. We have to stop traffic on mushrooms and go up to this guy and pull him out of the street and take him back. And we're like, holy shit, emergency Everything's fucked. We're going home. We're going home. Emergency. No more Central Park. All plans are canceled. Our friend just ran into traffic. So we go. We hail a cab, which is basically like easy because you're just like, I'll stick out my hand and then a cab will come. That's very simple. So we get into the cab and he's in the cab. Alex is in the cab and he starts weeping. And crying and violently crying, just just expressing things. He starts punching the, the 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 seat in front of him. Boom, boom, and he starts going. Why can't I get anything done? Why can't I get anything done? Okay. And at this point, the Brian and I are like. What the fuck? Do we need to go to hospital right now? Maybe we should go to St. Vincent's and turn around. He's like, we're gonna get anything done, blah, blah, blah. And the cab driver's like, shut up, please shut up, please. We're like, go to, he lives in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He lives on a, uh, at a, I'll never forget, 187 Kent uh, is, is where he lives. In one of these giant, like, former fish filet factories, now hipster apartment block that is endless and giant, and there are no apartment numbers, okay? So we take this cab back. I have taken my money out of my wallet and put it in my hand at the ready. I've got all my money. No matter how much this cab is, I'm ready. So it stops, and I'm like, money! Because that's what you do after cabs. You give them the money. The cab is $14. I give him $4. And he's like, what is the rest? What is the rest? And Brian's like, chill, man. Okay, it's cool. It's cool. I'll, I'll look at my bag. He goes into his bag, searching for his wallet. About two minutes go by, and then he looks at me and goes, I don't think I can fucking deal with this, man. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Give me your bag, man. I'll fucking get your wallet out. I start fishing around his bag. Turns out, I can't fucking deal with it. I cannot put it together to get a person's wallet out of a very small backpack, take it out, take money out, regardless of knowing the denomination of the bills. And I have a panic attack and I say to the cab driver, listen man, we're on hallucinogenic mushrooms right now. We all took hallucinogenic mushrooms and we are tripping and I don't know what money is. And he goes, get out of my cab! Get out of my cab! And we get out of his cab, and we're like, Alex, where do you live? And he's like, oh, 187 Kent, 187 Kent. And numbers are something else right now, but we go to, we eventually, we ask hipsters. It's just like, hey man, do you know where Kent is? Okay. Hey man, do you know where 187 Kent? I live there, bro. Go there. So we go outside. 
It's one of these giant fucking apartment blocks. And meanwhile, he runs, he's running into the street again. And, and, and so stressed out, like he must have been going through a very stressful time in his life because he's just running out of the street and saying things like, I can't get it together. And he is begging to be taken to the hospital, which I think is real and I don't think is real. And I'm just like, hospital's too important for us right now. We're tripping, this is fun. I'm still having fun, right? And, uh, no. And, uh, so we're outside, and there are, like, four entrances to this giant conglomeration of huge, bonkers, uh, Williamsburg apartment complex. And, uh, and we just, like, he's like, oh, yeah, I live, I live in here. And we go into one of the entrances, and we're, like, gray doors with no numbers on them, right? Just, like, I don't know why the fuck they don't put numbers on their apartments, but there are no numbers. So, and, and... We're going, we're going down the, the, the hall, and I'm like, which is your apartment, man? And he's like, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, you literally don't know where you live? And he's like, I don't know, man. I don't know. We're walking down this hall of gray doors, right? He starts jogging. He's like, oh, shit. I'm like, whoa, where is he going? He knows where he lives. He goes to the store. He's like, I live here. I'm like, oh, God, thank God. Thank God. Fuck. Come here, Bri. Like, oh, man, we got it. It's done. He knows where he lives. <laughs> Door's locked. He's a theater manager. He takes out a key ring with 5,000 keys on it. <laughs> and is like, here you go. Check this out. She says, check this out. And I look at these keys and I'm like, I can't even, I don't even know which way to put these in. I give it to Brian. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Finally, Alex takes his subway card, his Metro card out of his pocket and sticks it in the middle of the door and starts turning it. And I grab it. I'm just like, no, man, that's whatever's going to work. That's not going to work. So then... He takes off running again down the hall, which is a theme for the night. You take off running, and we're like, tripping, chasing you. I'm like, exercise. He goes, this is my apartment. Fuck. And we're like, oh, my God. Opens the door. The door's open. He's like, oh, God. He goes on the couch, takes off his shoes. His roommate's asleep on the couch watching uh, Conan. It's a Friday night. Conan's on. <laughs> and... Uh, we sit there and we're like, oh my God. And literally I hug Brian. I'm just like, come here, man. I love you, dude. You're the best. You know, we got through this. All of a sudden the guy on the couch wakes up. Who the fuck are you? What, what the fuck are you doing here? Alex gets up, takes his shoes. is like, oh, we run out. The guy takes a butcher knife out of the knife block of his kitchen and chases us out which is about a 10-foot run, but still, he's got a knife in his hand. He comes out, and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing in my place? And I pull down my eyelid like this, and I go, hey, man, my friend and I are having a real hard time right now. And he immediately knows what's happening and goes, oh, shit, I'm so sorry, man. Do you want any water? I'm like, thank God for hipsters. 
because they know when you're tripping. And he goes and gets us three bottle waters, takes them out, and we're like, thank you, thank you so much. We go, and then we're like, okay, let's just resign ourselves to the fact that we're not gonna find your apartment for a long time because you're so bonkers and batshit. We go downstairs, we're right on the river, right? Right on the uh, East River. And there's a little, we're like exploring around and tripping out kind of, and he's just in another land. And we go out in this, there's a, there's a big rip in this uh, iron, wrought iron fence, right? And so we go out and there's all these like hipsters outside, uh, right on the river and it's like super beautiful. And we're like, oh, oh, this is great. Maybe we'll start enjoying this. Uh, you know what? This could be fun. All of a sudden, fucking cops. <laughs> the worst possible thing that can happen when you're tripping. Cops come think that we're drunk, I tell the cops that we're tripping. I'm like, my friend's having a bad trip. I don't think I tell him that I'm tripping, but I'm like, my friend's having a really bad time. We gotta go, or whatever, and we get away from the cops. We go to this park, McCarran Park, and we sit under a tree until 9 a.m. in the morning, until he sobers up enough and he starts to recall what his apartment is and where he lives. We take him back to his apartment, and he's like, I don't know how to thank you guys. And we're like, give us some weed. Because <laughs> that's all you really want. And then we smoke a big joint at his place, hug for about, uh, you know, 45 seconds. A really crazy, like, we just went through war hug, and then uh, I took the train home. But uh, yeah, thank you. In the middle of the 20th century, in the United States of America, hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys and girls are becoming hopeless dope addicts every year. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true, true, true. Why don't you get it? Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. This is Garrett. You should see what we got at the record store. Three bombs. I don't know that group. Are they punk rock? <laughs> no, it's not a musical group. Look here. Bong. 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 Girls, what people use these for is... Smoking marijuana. I'm gonna put root beer in mine. It comes with a built-in straw. <laughs> I had just finished getting my graduate degree in psychology, and I was coming to the realization that I didn't want to be a therapist. So I was in a place of feeling really lost. About five months earlier, still in grad school, I'd gotten this kind of frantic call that said, you're missing a couple credits to graduate and you have to register right now and you have to take them this semester. 
and I go online and there are like two classes left. One of them was just this horrible class. It was like math and your inner child. And the other one was the history of hallucinogens. And I thought, great, as long as I don't have to do anything with math, we're good. I am not interested in that stuff at all. I have no romance with the drug culture. I ended up doing a complete 180 and walking away with a lot of respect for this area of research and finding out that hallucinogens and athenogens actually really help people. And then we'll kind of fast forward. I'm, I'm back to sort of being in this place where I'm feeling pretty lost. And I'm remembering a drug that we studied called ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is this vine that grows in South America and is used in these drinks that a lot of indigenous tribes will take for visioning quests. One of the things that it mentioned for people that had taken it was it had changed their life and pointed them in a new direction and a direction that felt much more honest and real and connected to who they were. And I got in touch with the guy that I went to grad school with. He'd actually lived in South America for about 15 years growing up and had studied with a shaman from that area. To top it all off, he was flying that guy in and he was going to be part of the ceremony. One of the things they tell you, actually the main thing they tell you, is that you need to set an intention and you need to have a very clear intention. My intention was I wanted more confidence. I wanted to know what my next steps were clearly. I just wanted my own sense of connection to, well, the universe, to be renewed again. And that's remembering what I had, I had read. I thought, okay this is what I'm going to do. And being someone who's, again, like not interested in romance by drugs, this was something very different for me to try. So I show up and there are around 12 people. They're there and they do the ceremony in the middle of nowhere because they want you to be connected to nature. The first part of the ceremony is just clearing away all the negative energy. And then you meditate on your intention and then you take the stuff. And then they tell you when you are ready, you throw it up. These three weeks before the ceremony, I had kind of gotten caught up in this fantasy of what I thought it would be. This wonderful psychedelic journey in waterfalls of divine bliss. And I would be playing with dolphins of self-esteem and I'd be given like a magical unicorn and then I'd wake up and like that would be it. Fast forward, they give us this concoction. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to take effect. The first thing that happens is everything around me begins to be covered by these geometrical lines. And then it began to be filled with these really ugly colors. This like dirty yellow and dirty blue and dirty red. And that pissed me off. It was like, if I want to see something, at least I want to see a color scheme I think is pretty. Like, I want to see something I like. I started to get more and more pissed off. And it was like this emotion started to solidify as this gray bubble in front of me and then kind of wrap around my body. And then I sort of passed out. And I wake up and I'm still sitting up. I'm still in the same place, but I'm in a well. I'm in this really, really long well and it's muddy and it's dirty and it's gross and it's infinite but I know that if I reach the bottom I'm going to die 
the feeling that's increasing is just one of extreme panic and terror. But it's not because I'm going to die. It's because I'm being given a choice. The choice is you either choose to die or you say no. What's the right choice? The longer I took to decide, my body started to elongate, so my feet were getting closer and closer to the bottom. And again, if they touched the bottom, I would die. It was so real. The whole death part became much more real than not facing it. It became like, this is what you should do. And by the way, if you choose to do this, you're not just going to die in your body. Your soul is going to die. Every part of you is going to be completely annihilated. There will be nothing left. The sense of deep loneliness and just nothingness was overwhelming. I become aware of the room. I become aware that I've taken this drug, that I'm hallucinating, and I'm going to be fucked for the rest of my life. The guy from my graduate school who's running this, he's taking care of everyone, and he comes over to me, and in kind of this, you know, hallucinogenic babble, I, I tell him what's going on, and it doesn't sound like he gets it, and it doesn't sound like he's taking me seriously, and that made me really uncomfortable. It kind of pushed me over the edge, and I vomited. As I was vomiting, it was like at exactly the same time I had chosen not to die. And then this huge wave of a sense of failure and disgust hit me like a truck. A sense that I was supposed to die, this was a rite of passage, I screwed it up. It felt like, oh, fuck, I fucked up. And this deep sense of failure, it like, it entered through my head and it just went down my spine and it's like it went through my entire body. It was the worst feeling of self-hatred I'd ever had in my life. So at the end of it, I heard this sound. It was like this clear whistle, like started out of my left ear and I felt as though this bright white crystal was growing out of my ear and it felt fantastic. There was something about it that was calming and healing and it was like the tiniest break from this you know soup of suffering I'd been in I just relaxed into this sound and I passed out the next morning I woke up and we share you know before we leave and when it came to me, I told this whole story about, I felt like I was asked to face death and I felt like it was the right thing to do. And then when I said no, I felt like a huge failure. And the shaman guy who was there, it's like he had no idea what I was talking about. I'm telling him this really intense experience and he sort of took it as though I was telling him I didn't like Caesar salad. I don't know, I, I thought I would get more guidance around it. It was only about a month later that, you know, the theme that kept coming up was, you were sitting in the soup of some of your greatest fears, that you're a failure. Sorry. <laughs> and that the whole issue about, you know, wanting to die, and that was, you know, had been facing death. Like, you know, that's, that's something like um, that I had been struggling with since I was little, was, you know, 
like wanting to leave and wanting to die and wanting to be just away from this world. And so to have two of these big themes of my life that I had to sit in and I had to look at and I had to feel on the deepest level possible, it took away a lot of their power. And I was seeing that, you know, I actually do have more confidence and I am a little more clear about what I'm supposed to do. Oh my God, it really fucking works. <laughs> Not at all in the way that I wanted. Not in the way that I expected. But I was asked to die and I said no. Fuck yeah, I said no. Maybe I actually did pass the test. I did do what I was supposed to do. I had seen the worst of it. I had felt it for fucking six hours. They had done their worst and I was still here and they weren't as scary anymore. And I never would have chosen to do that consciously. She turns and says to me, man, you'd better find some peace. Honestly, But where is that to be? When do I go to find some peace of mind? She said anywhere at all. She said anywhere at all. Yeah. This is Risk. We're listening to Ocean Ship with a song called Anywhere at All. It's lovely of them to have sent that in to us. And if you're a musician, you can do the same. And before that, we heard a story from a fan of the show, Ann Powell. She wrote into pitches at risk-show.com. Uh, she followed the instructions that are on the front page of our website, risk-show.com. You just scroll down and there's a whole blog post there about how to pitch us stories. Anyway, uh, I talked to her via Skype, the same way I talk to a lot of my storytelling students, my one-on-one -on -one trainees. So, very nice. We call that one Just Say No. And before that, a track called Bong 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 uh, by Musical Palsy of the monthly Acid Trip for Your Ears podcast, Mangled Meditations. Next up, we have a story by me in San Francisco. We call it The Water Bearer. When I was 30, I was uh, desperate. I was penniless. Uh, you know, it had been several years since my comedy career had crashed. Well, since 
I had crashed my comedy career, to be rigorous about my language. Um, it was just on that treadmill, the nightmare treadmill of going from survival job to survival job and kind of botching everyone. And a friend of mine called and said, well, Kevin, maybe you can get a job at my office because I work at this nonprofit and it's so sweet and you could become a person who recruits people to mentor children. And I said, oh, well, but I've never mentored children. And she said, well, that's why there's lying. <laughs> so the next day, I'm sitting and having an interview with her boss, this very nice man named Scott, who is the kind of uh, gay man very much unlike me, who is just very particular and well put together. You know, it looks like he spent like 20 minutes just making his beard just so that morning. And he was looking at me very warily, like he was afraid, oh, God, I'm not going to hire another loser, am I? <laughs> but I was very sweet and charming, and after about 20 minutes, he seemed to, you know, his defenses were kind of melting away. And he finally said, well, I think that this might work. And I said, oh, great, thanks, Scott. And then he started looking through a desk of his, and he, through one of his drawers, and he said, well, of course, there's, you know, the drug test now. And I said, of course. And if he had actually not been looking through his drawer and seen the sudden panic in my face, there would have been no need for a test at all. <laughs> So he gives me these papers that I have to take to a drug testing facility the next day and, you know, leads me back out into the sunshine. It's a gorgeous day in New York City, much like a couple days prior when I had been on Fire Island celebrating the 4th of July with my whole big circle of gay friends, which is another way of saying that as I was making my way out of that job interview, I was basically an ambulatory pharmacy. <laughs> There was still at least enough stuff going through my system to, you know, take out a small Labrador. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so desperate for this job, but I, I can't possibly give these drug test people my pee because if I do, there's no job. However, I could give them someone else's pee all I have to do is think of a friend of mine who doesn't do drugs and ask them for their pee. <laughs> so I took my little pad of paper out of my pocket and my pen to start brainstorming on those friends. And then I put the pad of paper back in my pocket and the pen because I don't have those kind of friends. <laughs> If there are, you know, people I know that, you know, stay away from the drugs, I was staying away from them at that point, keeping them mostly acquaintances. However, from the previous job I had botched, it was this wonderful catering company that catered to, you know, Martha Stewart and Donald Trump and all these people, very, very serious. And there was this little guy there, this little Italian guy that I had a total crush on named Frankie. And Frankie was, you know, fortunately gay like me, and, and he knew that I kind of liked him and had a little bit of a crush on him, but he was as straight-laced as they come. So I knew, you know, nothing would ever really happen between us. 
He used to say all the time, if you're doing something, you should do it really well. Only he was referring to cater waitering, <laughs> which boggled my mind. However, I thought, okay, Frankie. Frankie's so straight-laced, I can call him. So I go home, I find a catering call sheet, and I call up Frankie, and I say, hey, Frankie, it's Kevin from catering. And already it's awkward, because we don't call each other. We're just acquaintances. And he says, oh, well, what do I have the pleasure for? And I said, well, Frankie, it's kind of a long story. And it might, you know, sound kind of strange, but I was wondering if I could borrow just a little bit of your pee. <laughs> and then I began the long explanation that, look, they'll never be able to trace it to you, and it's ultimately for a really good cause, because I'll be helping people, you know, mentor children. <laughs> So after I yabber and yabber and yabber, he finally says, okay, come on over. He gave me his address, and, you know, about an hour later, I'm there at his apartment. And I hand him a Ziploc baggie. And I say, just go in this. He said, I'm peeing into a sandwich baggie? And I said, well, look, I have heard that this is supposed to be, you know, the right temperature. It's supposed to be warm like it is when it comes out of us. So I figured if I put it in something thin and squishy like this, I could stick it in my underwear under my balls <laughs> so that when I'm walking to the drug testing place, it's going to stay nice and warm. And he said, that's the plan. He said, Kevin, you are like the Ralph Cramden of the Lower East Side. And I was so flattered. Because <laughs> everyone loves Ralph Cramden. So, the moment came, he went into the bathroom, he did his thing, and he handed me this baggie, this Ziploc baggie that's like a one-third filled with this rich yellow liquid. And I have to tell you, it was this very strangely intimate moment. <laughs> I think we both felt it, where it was just like, oh. <laughs> and it just became more and more awkward between us. And he said, you really are using this for a drug test, aren't you? <laughs> I said, of course I am, Frankie. And he said, well, then good luck. And he let me out. Now, before I exited the building, I tucked it in the underwear and all. Only what I found immediately, because I, I had planned this so that I was going to walk from the Lower East Side up to the Upper East Side. Long walk. Stay warm and all. However, it's very uncomfortably warm there and, and, and it's kind of uncomfortably squishy and every time I'm walking it's going <laughs> so I'm walking kind of bow-legged and I'm worrying that it's going to fall out it's just kind of already feeling disastrous I make it to the drug testing place and it's a tiny little room. The waiting room is tiny and there's a woman, a nurse sitting at the window there and no one else is there and there's just plenty of free seats and she says, oh, it's going to be like 10, 15 minutes to so just have a seat. Well, I was kind of stunned because I couldn't imagine sitting down. 
I mean, this thing was so precarious feeling as it was. If I even attempted something as, you know, radical as sitting, I could just feel that thing bursting all over the place. So I'm standing there like a deer in the headlights, and she's looking at me like, you can sit, right? And all of a sudden, I just got flustered and said, I forgot, I have another appointment, and ran out. And I went across the street to the J.P. Morgan Library and left the baggie in a toilet there. And again, it was a very surreal sight. It was kind of like... There's the toilet water and the pee, but the pee is in a little plastic bubble of its own. So now they had that and the Gutenberg Bible. Well, I called Frankie the next day, and I said, Frankie, um, it's kind of a long story. And I know it's going to sound strange, but I'm going to have to borrow a little bit more of your pee. He was like, what in hell are you doing with my bodily fluids? Like, look, look, look. I started the long explanation about the fact that the baggie was just not the right idea. And now it was going to be perfect because I had a glass test tube and that couldn't break because, you know, it's so powerful and all that sort of thing. He said, please don't tell me you're going to put it up your butt. And I thought, well, that, he's smart. I should not do that. I should this time just put it in the pocket. So I decided that's the new plan, pocket, pocket. So I go back to Frankie's, and he's rolling his eyes, doing the thing, gives me the test tube, and I head back there. And when the woman says, take a seat, I triumphantly do. (laughs) And then... When she says she's ready to take me, I just go in and I dump the contents into the little cup and give it back to her about a minute later. And about a minute after that, she comes back looking at me with this very flat expression on her face. And she says, sir, this is not your urine. I said, what? How could that be? What would it? And she said, well, it's not the temperature of a human being. I was like, Oh, well, you know, maybe I'm under the weather. And she handed me a fresh cup and said, maybe you should try again. I was trapped. There was nothing I could do but go into the bathroom and give her the real deal. And I thought, oh, my God, what do I do? I I did it. I gave it to her. And she sent me on my way. She let me know it was going to be about a week before the results would get back to my boss. So... I waited one day and I was just worrying. I waited a second day worrying. And third day, I was so mortified and worrying so much that I thought, there's got to be a last resort. You know, that guy, Scott, really seemed to like me. Maybe I can appeal to him, appeal to his better angels with honesty. Partially. So, I wrote down a little script, I started rehearsing it for a telephone call, and finally I decided I was ready. Of course, those scripts always go right out the window as soon as you're in the conversation. I called and I said, Scott, uh, it's Kevin Allison. And he said, yeah? And I said, oh, I I, I just wanted to, well, I just wanted to address that that, uh, there's something that I really feel I should be honest with you about. And he said, What's that? I said, well, about that drug test, um, 
I have just the week before been partying on Fire Island, a little vacation with my friends, and it's just that there might be a little something on there. He's like, like what? And I said, oh, well, not, you know, she's like, uh, maybe some marijuana. And he said, uh-huh. Now, see, I thought he was going to say, oh, okay, well, I think we can, you know, get around that probably. But no. He said, and what else? <laughs> I said, oh, <laughs> not much, really. I said, why did I say really? <laughs> And he said, uh, it sounds like you're not quite telling the truth. And now he had really found my weakness. Because the reason that I'm not good at these Ralph Cramden-like schemes is because I'm just not good at being dishonest. And I just felt myself like more and more crammed in a corner until I kind of just burst like a water balloon with a pin stuck in it. I just said, well, you know, there might have been like traces of cocaine and maybe some meth and... I don't know. I mean, I, well, there was the LSD, and uh, there's this stuff they call Special K. It's not. It's for tranquilizing horses, though. So, well, he said, wow, that does sound like quite a lot. I said, yeah, yeah, but you know what, Scott? Never again. <laughs> just a week of experimentation and you know what seriously never ever again and he said well this is all very interesting because I'm holding your results report in my hand right now and none of that is on it (laughs) it's totally clean and I said "Uh uh-huh he said listen Kevin I'll tell you what, I am very disturbed by the things you just told me. However, you seem like such a smart, nice guy. If you promise me, you really will quit that crap out. I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a shot. I will be watching you, but I'll give you a shot. And it occurred to me, this guy, Scott, really is a softie after all. So we finished that phone call, hung up the phone, and I thought, that's great. That's great that he's such a softy. We're, we're simpatico that way. And you know what else that means? This is probably another one of those jobs that I can get away with doing stoned. <laughs> Thank you. Who is it? It's me, Dave, man. Open up, I got the stuff. Who?
Dave, come on, man. Open up. I think the cops Dave's summoned. not here. That's Dave's Not Here by Jeff Barr. Our final story comes to us from New York-based comedian Blaine Neese, a brilliant guy, and it was a true honor to sit down with him and get uh, such an important story. Here it is. We call it Life After. I do multimedia comedy and I I can say that I've never really been myself on stage. I'm more like character driven. I started doing alternative comedy, I guess you'd call it, and uh, sneaking off and not telling the family. I would just do it late at night in Philadelphia at open mic nights and um, then run off stage and leave. I entered into a contest, the Andy Kaufman Award. That was the only time that my sister had seen me perform. We are polar opposites, physically and uh, just emotionally and just entirely different people. She's blonde with uh, brown eyes and she's loud and boisterous and just fun. She was into sports. I would read, she didn't. Um, she would uh, like the terrible music and I, of course, loved great music. And uh, that's just the way it is, I, I suppose. She had uh, sort of drifted into a drug scene. I don't really know what was going on. I do know there were problems. The only one we knew conclusively was uh, cocaine. She moved back home, and then there were phone calls, and there was just, uh, there was something plaguing her. And then the next thing I know that she's in jail for a year. And uh, I, I had not known that my parents were going to visit her in upstate Pennsylvania in a correctional facility. By the way, she was a substitute teacher. <laughs> I always thought that was interesting. Um, and she had to have real problems because they call you in the morning at 5 a.m. to let you know if you have a job that day, which was always, uh, when she lived at home, that was just, it would drive everyone nuts because she would just be comatose and there would be like, phone would ring off the hook and ring off the hook and she wouldn't have a job. But um, later, she got cleaned up. She got out of jail and she uh, sort of was getting it back together. I would see her when I came home and she would sort of be with it. There was still a little nagging something. But the great thing was she came and she saw me perform when I won an award. And that was the only time that she had seen me perform live. I got the sense that she didn't really like what I do, but she really respected it and was very proud. So I I won the award and uh, some time goes by and I'm doing other shows and I get contacted to perform in the Just for Last Festival in Chicago. So I did it the first night, and earlier that day, actually, I had got a phone call from my dad. I didn't check the message till a little bit later. My mom had received a phone call from the job saying that uh, my sister Virginia had not reported for work. And this was odd, so my mom went over to the house and uh, had found her uh, face down in, the, in her own apartment where she lived alone, um, candle still burning. My dad said, uh, well, there's nothing you can do. Your sister is um, on life support. You're you're in Chicago. You're not a doctor. There's nothing you can do. So just do your performance. And then he gave me a call less than, seems like 10 minutes later. And he just said, yeah, she's gone. And I was just standing there and that was it. Then I realized I have the second of my two performances later that night. And I didn't know what to do. 
do I just try to take an early flight? I checked. There were none. My next flight was in the 6 in the morning the next day anyway. So I thought, let me just participate in the largest amount of irony on record and uh, just perform on the saddest day of my life. And so I don't remember a thing. I got to the theater. People said, how are you doing? And I couldn't even say, oh, I'm fine. I just gave my um, not so good. I don't really want to talk about it. I just wanted to clear up that um, her death was non-drug related. Her body was compromised by the drug use, years of drug use. And so she was 38, and it was heart failure. We had an experience when I was a kid. Uh, I was five years old, I think. We were woken up in the middle of the night, and uh, next thing I know, we're in the back of a car. And my mom sort of just leaned back and told us, she's like, we're, we're going home. Uh, your grandfather has died. And uh, my sister just started crying and crying and crying. And I remember sitting there thinking, why am I not crying? You know, why am I not feeling sad? And that was another thing that I was jealous of her because she could just be emotional, just pure emotion all the time. We were so different that I was kind of embarrassed of her sometimes. She would just say whatever she thought, which when someone is with you and they're alive, is really embarrassing. But when they're not, it's very endearing. And we didn't talk much towards the end, but I really wish we had. <clears throat> so... The last, um, the last thing she had posted on Facebook was a ridiculously phrased paragraph in like text talk, which was just so embarrassing. But it's just like my brother, performer, Chicago. It was just describing. It just said go, and uh, that was the last uh, contact that I had with her. And then, uh, not too long after that, I got a copy of the original performance that she showed up at. It's a recording of my performance, but I, on, I only watch her. She's in the front, in the, in the right corner. And I can hear her laugh, which is like a ridiculous sound. And I can distinctly pick her voice out of the crowd when they announced that I won. And, uh, I just made, I, I burned like 10 copies of it just to have it, you know? The winner is everybody. So I have a few good memories and uh, it's all sort of captured. It's preserved. The last few times we had had an interaction, which was getting better. She was better. I was on my way, and we had uh, we didn't really have a huge connection earlier on in life, but uh, I guess if there's a tragic point, it's that uh, we were about to about to have an adult relationship. So I have to fill in the gaps where she was because there's a void. 
Yeah, that's where I stand now. Just trying to rectify all that's happened and be a better person because of it. And uh, still, to this day, very embarrassed of her. Um, because I'll meet her friends and they will tell me stories of when I was not there. And I could just, and I'm just amazed at who she was and how she could just be a, a person, a genuine person, all the time in front of people. Because I'm so quiet, I'm so uh, reserved. I'm just gonna go ahead and sort of be myself more. It's like I didn't trust who I was before, but now there's no point in not. You can be yourself. We've all had these experiences. It's just. It's just a real thing. It connects me to people now where I didn't feel that before. This is the brilliant John Vanderslice, Too Much Time, from Romanian Games. Uh, a very dear new friend of ours. Well, folks, this was Risk. Thanks again to Blaine Nice and to all our contributors. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Rolled up my mind. I've got no obligations Packed up my pots and pans And Freedom is overrated Stone by stone I left my only home and brick 
myself from happiness and dead fur and almond wood, storm crosses over Mount Hood. I've got too much time. Uh -oh. Too much time gone by, and I can't find you if I try. Too much time. Too much time gone by and I can't